You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part six in our series on the Burke and Wills Expedition. Last time, we left Robert Burke and William Wills, plus John King and Charlie Gray, about a dozen miles from the northern coast of Australia. Burke had accomplished his goal of crossing the continent, although you can quibble about those last few miles and say he didn't really quite make it. But it's good enough in the eyes of history, so that is fine by me. Anyhow, today we are going to send Burke back across the continent, aiming for Cooper's Creek, a journey of about a thousand miles when you factor in all the twists and turns you will have to make. It is not going to be easy. However, before we jump in with Burke and Wills, let's check in on the other two groups of the Victorian Exploring Expedition. The first consisted of the four men at the supply depot at Cooper's Creek under the command of William Bra, and the second was the relief expedition under William Wright, who had reached the Torowoto Swamp, about halfway between Menendee and Cooper's Creek. We will start today's story with Wright and his men. William Wright had left Menendee at the end of January, bound for Cooper's Creek. He had the supplies that would be desperately needed by Burke and Wills when, and if, they returned to the depot from their journey to the north coast. But things had been difficult. It was the middle of summer, and water was desperately short. Temperatures were often more than 100 degrees. The horses suffered the most, and at one point were in danger of dying. The relief expedition managed to reach the Torowoto Swamp on February 12th, where they stayed and recuperated. Wright could not get any of the locals to guide the expedition, but they were warned by the Aboriginal people that most of the water to the north was dried up. The only sure water source would be at the Bolu Lakes, about 100 miles to the north. From there, it was another 100 miles to Cooper's Creek. The party would push on from Torowoto and find that the region was an arid wasteland. The sun had sucked the life out of almost everything. On February 19th, the expedition would reach a place that they would call Rat Point Camp, and with that name, you can imagine what was found there. The rats aside, and there were lots of them, the location featured some stagnant water to keep the men and animals alive. However, the water was rife with bacteria, and soon many of the men would become sick and suffer from diarrhea and vomiting. The expedition would spend a staggering 20 days at Rat Point Camp, plagued by rats, dysentery, and a brutal dry heat. It was miserable and unhealthy. The problem for the relief column, as you can guess, was water. Wright didn't know where to find it. He had no guide and he had never been this far north. He was afraid to lead the entire expedition into the wild without a sure water source. That would be a recipe for disaster. 
Thus he would take baby steps and venture north with a scouting party to try and find a viable creek or water hole. Once a suitable location was found, the rest of the party could be summoned forward. At Rat Point Camp, scurvy, and possibly beriberi, would start to rear their ugly heads as the men began to suffer from a lack of vitamins. Ludwig Becker, who at 52 was older than most of the men in the expedition, began to show signs of scurvy, and two of the men added at Men and D, William Purcell and Charles Stone, were sick as well. In fact, the entire party was affected by the harsh weather and poor diet. The men were losing weight and suffering from exhaustion. By the way, despite his illness, Ludwig Becker, the expedition's artist, would complete seven sketches at Rat Point Camp, including one of a rat he found chewing on his foot. The expedition would finally depart Rat Point Camp on March 12th and reach another fetid waterhole called Poria Creek. It was a cesspool of rats, flies, and mosquitoes. The health of the men only grew worse, especially Becker and Purcell, the latter becoming delirious. Despite the illnesses, the expedition would push on, as staying would do them no good. On March 30th, the men would reach Curliato Creek, where a camp was established. Again, Wright would set out to the north looking for water, while Dr. Herman Beckler set up an infirmary, hoping that rest and fresh water would help the sick men get better. On one of his scouting excursions, Wright would reach the Bolu Lakes on April 4th. Here, there was plenty of water, as well as vegetation. Wright even wondered if he had reached Cooper's Creek, but he, correctly, figured it was still further north. Wright would send a man back to Corleato Creek with orders to bring the rest of the party north, but Dr. Beckler refused to budge. Several of the men were deathly ill, and he feared a ride north would kill them. Thus, the expedition would spend three weeks there, hoping for the general health of the men to improve. But the lack of fresh food was going to prevent anyone from getting better. Ludwig Becker would continue to sketch and paint, despite severe pains and bowel problems. William Purcell was in terrible pain and was rambling and delirious. When the men's health didn't improve, Beckler would relent and lead them onward. They would reach Wright's camp at the Bolu Lakes on April 21st. They were about a 100 miles from Cooper's Creek. And it is here where we will leave William Wright and his men. They were, for the time being, safe. They had plenty of water, fodder for the horses and camels, and there was an opportunity to hunt and fish. But several of the men were in very bad shape, including Ludwig Becker, William Purcell, and Charles Stone. And to top it all off, the local Aboriginal people were none too thrilled at the arrival of the white men, who had taken up residence at one of the area's prime water holes. So William Wright had to try and figure out the next step to get to Cooper's Creek while dealing with dying men and hostile natives. And with that, let us move on to William Bra and the men at Cooper's Creek. William Bra was a serious and dutiful young man. He was only 25 years old and had originally signed on with the VEE as a wagon driver. He had desperately wanted to go with Robert Burke across the continent, but instead had been left in command of the supply depot at Cooper's Creek. It was an important position, but it did not offer much chance for glory. Still, Bra worked hard to run a smooth ship. Yet, despite all of his positives, let's remember that Bra had not been trained for something like this. Instead of being innovative, he hunkered down. Burke's orders had been to keep away from the local Aboriginal people, which is what Bra did. Thus, he never learned how to take advantage of the area's resources, specifically the fishing, which was readily available and would have greatly improved the men's diet and health. But that did not happen, and the men at Cooper's Creek consumed the same food that they had been eating the past few months. Rice, bread, salted meat, biscuits, and so forth. Scurvy was inevitable. William Patton was the first man to display signs of the disease, which included aching legs and arms, as well as sore gums. 
Now, Burke had asked Bra to remain at the camp for three months, but William Wills had asked Bra to remain for four months. This is something that Bra agreed to do. Well, the three-month anniversary came and went, and Bra could only fret about what he was going to do next. He prayed that Burke and the men would return from the north, or that William Wright would arrive, and save him from having to make any dramatic decisions. But come April, there was no signs of Burke or the relief expedition. Bra knew he was going to have to make a decision soon. The problems were, A, he was running low on provisions. The longer he waited, the fewer provisions he could leave at the depot for Burke, assuming the man returned. And B, scurvy was a real threat. William Purcell was especially bad and was getting worse by the day. And Bra and one of the other men, Thomas McDonough, were showing signs of the disease. After consulting with McDonough, who was Burke's friend dating back to Ireland, Bra decided he would try and hang on until May 1st. But by mid-April, things were getting desperate. Patton was so weak, he couldn't lift his hammer or even stand. He begged Bra to take him back to civilization. Thus, on April 18, 1861, William Bra would make his decision. He had waited over four months. That was more than Burke, or even Wills, had asked him to stay. It was time to head back to Menendee. William Patton's life was at risk, and if they waited too much longer, so would Bra's and McDonough's. McDonough agreed it was the right decision. The two men were convinced that Burke wasn't coming back. He was dead, or perhaps he had decided to march east, into Queensland, once they had reached the north coast. Or maybe Burke had been picked up by a ship at the Gulf of Carpentaria. Remember that idea? Yes, Burke had thought it unlikely, but it could explain why the Gulf Party had not returned by now. With his situation increasingly untenable, William Broad decided to depart for the south. The men would begin to pack up the camp for the journey. They set a departure date for April 21, 1861. And with that, it is now time to move on to Robert Burke and his comrades as they begin their trek back across the Australian continent. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. On February 12, 1861, Robert Burke took stock of his situation. He and his men had food for roughly 30 days, and the march back to Cooper's Creek would take at least 60 days. Because of this, Burke announced that the expedition would be on half rations going forward. Despite this, the men were proud and happy. They had done it. They had reached the Gulf of Carpentaria, the first men in history to cross the Australian continent. And now, every step that they took was another step closer to home. So, Burke ordered everything ready for departure. Anything not necessary was discarded. Also, King would carve the letter B in the Roman numerals for 119, the camp number, on no less than 15 different trees, proof that they had crossed the continent. The VEE would begin their return journey the next day in a heavy downpour. Now, despite the pride the men felt about crossing the continent, there was cause for concern. The shortage of food and a poor diet, one lacking in vitamins and nutrients, had left the men thin, weak, and drained. Charlie Gray, the big, burly former sailor, who could work as hard as any two men combined, was suffering from headaches and constant fatigue. It was bad enough that John King took over the management of the camp. 
and these conditions were affecting the animals as well. They simply could not carry as much or travel as far. The men, by the way, looked as bad as they felt. They had lost weight and tired easily. Their hair and beards were long and unkept, and their clothing was rotting in the humid environment, so they were in rags. And the weather was doing no one any favors. It was brutally hot and humid, the temperatures reaching 100 degrees on a regular basis. Regarding the humidity, Wills would write, quote, The slightest exertion made one feel as if they were in a state of suffocation. End quote. And then to top it all off, there was the rain. Monsoon-type rains, rains that never stopped. In these early days, it made for a trek that was ankle-deep in mud and muck. It was so bad in the first week, the expedition averaged only four or five miles a day. Sometimes the rain came down so hard, the men had to stop and just wait it out. And with no tents, they huddled together under a sheet of oilcloth, as they were pounded relentlessly by thunderous squalls. Still, slowly and surely, Burke and his men plotted their way south, the ground growing firmer and the rains easing as they moved beyond the tropical gulf region. On the positive side, the men did not have to blaze a trail. Now they just had to retrace their steps. But it was a grueling, grinding affair due to the stifling heat. The men would often start their trek early in the morning to avoid the hot sun. By March 2nd, the expedition had managed to go 135 miles from Camp 119, a pace of about 8 miles a day. And it was on this day that the expedition would find an old friend, Gola, the camel who had gotten stuck in the river the month before. Gola had managed to free himself on his own and had survived these past weeks, but just barely. He was nothing but skin and bones, and he happily rejoined the march south, although he was in such terrible shape he could not be ridden or used to carry any provisions. The biggest issue for the VEE at this point was food. The men were too tired to hunt, so they were stuck with the rations at hand. The one exception was a plant called portulac. It grows on the riverbanks of the area, and after it is boiled, the men reported that it tasted like spinach. It was a welcome addition to their diets, and it likely staved off scurvy as it was high in vitamin C. But the portulac aside, it was a diet of rotting meat and flour that sustained the men. Each morning and night, Burke would divide up four plates of food and place a towel over each while the men weren't looking. The men would then randomly select a plate. It was a way to prevent anyone from feeling as if they were being shortchanged on the amount of food they were to receive. And I want to note, Burke never took any extra food, despite being the expedition's leader. In the past, he had literally said he would not ask someone to undertake something he himself would not do. And that was the same with the food. He would eat exactly as his men would eat, and there were no exceptions, not even for himself. The next day, March 3rd, the expedition would actually get some fresh meat when they killed an 8-foot-long python. The men would dine on python steaks that night, seemingly a stroke of good fortune. Burke would even name the location Feasting Camp. However, the next day, Burke would become violently ill, forcing the expedition to halt their progress for hours. Burke would suffer gastrointestinal distress for several days, but he would ultimately recover. However, there was someone else who was not going to recover from their own health issues, and that was Gola, the recently rediscovered camel. The animal was simply too far gone and could move no more. Thus, he was abandoned a second time. Now, Burke did pass on the opportunity to turn the unfortunate Gola into food. This was typically done by jerking the meat. This entailed laying strips of fresh meat out in the sun, drying it, and adding salt to preserve it. This could have brought the expedition some welcome food. However, jerking meat takes an entire day, and Burke felt that speed was more essential at this time. On March 7th, the expedition would reach the one-third mark in their journey back to Cooper's Creek. They had averaged about 10 miles a day, compared to 17 miles a day on the trek to the north. 
While the weather certainly played a role in the slow progress, the big reason for this was that the men were so weak and taxed. It is something that many explorers don't calculate into their equations. It means everyone, men and animals, are slower. Everyone has less energy and endurance. It often makes for a difficult return, and that is exactly what happened with Burke. So, in mid-March, the men would recross the Selwyn Ranges, saving some time when Wills found a better route through the mountain range. But it was obvious that the men were physically and mentally falling apart. Both Burke and Wills were complaining of leg and back pains, and Charlie Gray's headaches were growing more and more severe. In the journal of William Wills, this is demonstrated by his terse diary entries. He, and the others, just didn't have the strength or time for extra activities such as writing. On March 15th, due to the slow progress, Burke would order rations reduced from one-half to one-third. This is often called starvation rations. Also, more gear was abandoned to lighten the loads of the camels. Then, on March 25th, the expedition would be faced with a disheartening moment. John King would discover Charlie Gray stealing food. Until now, the expedition across the outback had been a unifying affair. The men had faced adversity together. But the stealing of food while in such a dire situation was a fierce betrayal. Burke was, as you can expect, furious. Wills would write in his diary that Gray, quote, received a good thrashing, end quote, from Burke. King would clarify that Burke had indeed lost his temper and that Burke had delivered, quote, several boxes on the ear with his open hand, not a thrashing, end quote. No matter, everyone was furious at the betrayal. Gray said that he had taken the food to help battle dysentery, and he had done so on more than one occasion. This was serious. How long had Gray been taking food? If it had been happening for weeks, it was possible the expedition had lost many days of food stores. This could mean the difference between life and death. Burke, despite his outrage, would quickly forgive Gray for his transgressions. But the big man would never be allowed near the food stores for the rest of the journey, and the attitude toward Gray, as you can imagine, turned cold. Gray had been well-liked, and up to this time called Charlie by Wills in his journals, but going forward, Wills referred to him now as the more formal Gray. So onward the VEE plotted. As they moved further and further inland, the green lands the men had come upon in the journey north were replaced by parched desert, and more importantly, many of the water sources had dried up. Also, in addition to the dry and heat, the expedition was hit with a new challenge, the wind. It could be a powerful force in the desert, whipping up dust storms so fierce the men would have to halt their march. Without tents, they would be forced to dig in and weather the storm. By the end of March, the expedition's food supply was dangerously low, forcing Burke to take a drastic step. He elected to kill one of the camels for food. The men would then spend the next day jerking the meat. The expedition was now down to three camels and one horse. While the fresh meat was a welcome addition to their diets, the men were suffering terribly. Many historians believe that they suffered from beriberi, a lack of vitamin B. This can cause muscle function problems, often in the legs, plus mental confusion, paralysis, swollen legs, fatigue, and delirium. All of these things were beginning to affect the men. On April 3rd, another of the camels refused to move. It was simply exhausted and would not continue. Burke elected to abandon the animal rather than kill it and spend the day jerking the meat. The expedition was now down to two camels. Also at this time, more gear would be abandoned. This included Wills's astronomical and meteorological instruments, which were buried. Going forward, the men would no longer be able to calculate their position. Burke felt that the instruments were not needed, as the expedition was now just retracing their steps. On April 8th, about 200 miles from the Cooper's Creek Depot, the expedition, which was in desperate need of water, would reach the Diamantina River. 
Here, Charlie Gray would collapse and could not walk. Going forward, much of the time, he would have to be strapped to one of the surviving camels. The men, by the way, at this point, resented Gray, many of them believing that he was faking his health problems. The next day would see the loss of another of the animals, this time Billy the horse. Billy was simply exhausted and could not continue. John King would have to shoot the horse, as Burke could not do it due to his sentimental attachment to the animal. The men would then spend the rest of the day jerking the horse meat. By the way, Billy would go down in history as the first horse to cross Australia. So onward the men pushed, the stony desert awaiting them. The last time through the stony desert, the expedition had been fortunate as recent rains had filled the waterholes. They would not be so lucky this time. Still, they pushed through it, even with Charlie Gray's condition worsening by the day. And speaking of Gray, he was now not just sick, but deathly sick. For several days, he was delirious and suffering from pains throughout his body. And then, on April 17th, Gray would die. Despite being exhausted, King and Wills would spend a full day digging a grave for Gray, and Burke would lead a service for the former sailor. In some ways, the death of Gray would help the others. They were no longer required to attend to the man or have to use one of the camels to carry him. It allowed the surviving men to move quicker. The remaining members of the Gulf Expedition would set out the next day. They were now only about 15 miles from Cooper's Creek. From there, it was another two to three days to reach the supply depot upriver. The next day, the expedition would reach Cooper's Creek and head east. They would again leave behind any items they did not need. This included pots and pans and even a rifle. Burke said that they could come back for these items at a later date. And then on April 21st, 1861, at dusk, Robert Burke, William Wills, and John King, shattered physically and mentally from their long cross-continent trek, reached the supply depot at Cooper's Creek. As they approached, they called out the names of the men at the depot. Bra, McDonough, Patton, but there was no answer. And then the three men would enter the depot, only to find it abandoned. The only thing that they saw was a message carved into one of the great Kulaba trees. It said, Dig under three feet northwest. And there was a date, April 21st, 1861. It would not have taken long for the men to realize that, to their horror, Bra and his men had only departed the camp earlier that day. A quick check of the ashes in the fire pit confirmed this, as they were still warm. The men would quickly dig into the ground as indicated, where, about a foot and a half deep, they found a camel trunk left by Burke. In it were supplies, mostly food, as well as a letter. The letter said that the party had, indeed, left earlier that day. They noted that Patton was very ill, but the rest of the men were, quote, quite well, end quote, which was not really true. In the letter, Bross stated that he had taken with him six camels and twelve horses, which were in, quote, good working condition, end quote. This latter comment was an exaggeration. So there you have it. Burke had missed Bra by mere hours. It is almost unimaginable to know what these men must have felt like in this situation, to come so far after so long, only to miss Bra by mere hours. It must have been like a staggering punch to the gut. Still, the men had to go on. No doubt they debated their next steps. Do they go after Bra? Maybe even just send the healthiest of the men ahead to try and catch up. He could fire off a rifle to try and draw the attention of Bra and the others. Burke asked the opinion of the men, and both Wills and King agreed. With darkness approaching, it was madness to try to catch them. They could be 20 miles to the south by now. And everyone was exhausted, mentally and physically. To try and catch up to Bra and the others in the dark was a fool's errand. With that decided, Burke now had to contemplate the future. What should he do next? Well, as he pondered that question, 
the three men would enjoy a good meal for the first time in months. And while they do that, I want to return briefly to William Bra and talk about his and his comrades' last days at Cooper's Creek. As we discussed earlier, William Bra had decided to depart the depot at Cooper's Creek for several reasons. The first and foremost reason was the deteriorating health of William Patton. The blacksmith was in terrible shape. He had not walked in three weeks and needed proper medical care. The second reason was the health of the rest of the men. Scurvy was beginning to affect Bra and McDonough. Sooner or later, they would suffer the same fate as Patton. With no sign of the relief column, or Burke, they could not afford to wait any longer. And besides, they had remained at the depot for well over four months, longer than what Burke and Wills had asked of them. By this time, the likelihood of Burke returning was slim and growing slimmer with each passing day. Brow would, ultimately, select April 21st as the departure date and prepare accordingly. The men would pack up the gear and provisions and make ready for travel. With Thomas McDonough as a witness, Bra would burn the packet of letters Burke had given him back in December. Next, the men dug a hole near one of the Kulaba trees and buried a camel trunk, which was a large wooden chest. Inside was the food, plus Bra's letter. Bra would then cover the chest, making sure that the location was properly disguised so that the natives couldn't loot its contents. Then he would carve the famous dig message into the tree so that Burke would know where to find the supplies. By the way, the dig tree, as it is now known, still exists to this day. It is about 200 to 250 years old, and you can still make out the message left by Bra, as well as the VEE inscription and the camp number. Anyhow, Bra and his three comrades, William Patton, Thomas McDonough, and Dost Mohammed, would depart at 10.30 in the morning on April 21st. Bra took with him roughly two-thirds of the supplies, enough, he felt, to get him and his men back to Menin The other one-third of the supplies, which consisted of flour, oatmeal, sugar, and rice, were left in the camel trunk. So that is the story of how William Bra had departed the supply depot only hours before Robert Burke and his men had returned. It was a tragic and cruel twist of fate. So many things could have gotten Burke back to the camp a day earlier, had they not bothered to spend nearly an entire day burying Charlie Gray as a prime example, or if Bra had simply waited one more day to depart. It all would have changed history. But none of that happened. Instead, Bra and his men were on the move, 10 to 15 miles away from Burke, Wills, and King. And that, my friends, takes us back to Robert Burke. The Irishman took stock of his supply situation and estimated that Bra had left him with provisions for about 40 days. The logical thing would have been to simply head south, toward Menendee. It was a 400-mile trek, but Burke knew that water was not easy to come by at this time of year, an assessment that William Wright and the relief column would agree with. Also, Burke worried that they didn't have enough food for the journey. He realized that he and his comrades, as well as the camels, would have to go very slow, maybe five miles a day. Forty days of provisions was not going to get them to Menendee. Thus, Robert Burke would come up with a new idea. To the west, about 150 miles away, was a cattle station at a place called Mount Hopeless. Not a great-sounding name, considering the circumstances, but it was closer than Menendee. Back in 1858, Augustus Gregory had traveled west to Mount Hopeless, going along Cooper's Creek, and then following another creek much of the way to the west. If Gregory could do it, thought Burke, why not him and his men? Well, the shorter distance aside, there were a few big reasons not to go to Mount Hopeless. The first is that the men really didn't know the way. They would have to go on the vague descriptions left by Gregory years earlier. And second, Wills could not navigate without his instruments. Going into the unknown presented so many risks, and without his navigational tools, the chances of going in the right direction dropped big time. 
And third, if the expedition went to Mount Hopeless, this meant there would be no chance they would encounter a relief expedition coming from the south to Cooper's Creek. Burke would present this idea to Wills, who argued against it, and King agreed. With no maps or instruments or guide, it was just too big of a risk. But Robert Burke decided that heading to Mount Hopeless was their best option, and Wills and King were not the kind of men to protest such a decision. They would follow Burke, despite any misgivings. And that is where we will leave things for today. William Brough was heading south, just trying to get back to Men and D. William Wright was at the Bolu Lakes, trying to figure out how he was going to get to Cooper's Creek, despite the waning health of his men. And Robert Burke, William Wills, and John King were preparing to head west, toward Mount Hopeless. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, which is really pretty heartbreaking. One man had died, and others in the expedition were fighting for their lives. And the near miss at the supply depot at Cooper's Creek, well, it just makes your heart sink. So, so close. Anyhow, join us next time when, in part 7 of our series, we will find out the fates of Burke, Wills, and King, and all the rest of the men of the VEE. Thank you for listening. Please take care. I will see you next time. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.